Now, we all love a good movie, and in this sponsored episode, Cold War Conversations has partnered with Mubi, a curated streaming service with an ever-changing collection of lovingly hand-picked cinema. From new directors to award winners, from everywhere on earth, beautiful, interesting, incredible films with a new one added every single day. Sergei Loznitsa's State Funeral is now streaming exclusively on Mubi and our listeners can watch this film and much more for 30 days free at mubi.com slash coldwar. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash coldwar. State Funeral is an astonishing vision of the Soviet Union in the days after Joseph Stalin's death which saw a mass procession of mourners visit his coffin prior to a monumental funeral ceremony in Red Square. James Chilcott, Peter Ryan and I had exclusive access to a preview version and in this episode we discuss our thoughts on the film. I did not know what to expect when I started watching State Funeral I have to admit the the period of of Stalinism and sort of what happened when Stalin died and and immediately thereafter are not areas that I have done a lot of study on. But in preparation for watching the movie, I, I did read up a little bit. My impressions were, number one, it was incredibly well edited and very well put together. I couldn't get over the quality of the... The, the footage, you know, the crispness of the images was was really quite something. And equally speaking, it was, for me, fascinating to not just get a glimpse of the activities that happened all the way from when the announcement that Stalin died through to when he was entombed, but, but really it was just seeing the extent to which this was pervasive across the USSR. That, that's something that, that really took me aback. And I think really spoke to the level of detail that the producers of the movie got into. And and I think from a historical value, it, it's really quite something. I agree with, uh, with, with all of that. I think the the detail is stunning. I don't think there's any other word for it. And, you know, the way that I've described it is it's almost like traveling back in time. It's, it's like you've got a front row seat at, at Stalin's funeral and, you know, the richness of the colors in the color sections mm-hmm. as well really um, come through. And it, it's all this, you know, these seas of faces and then they're, they're picking on individuals in, in the crowd. And, you know, there's sort of like a bit of nervousness in front of the camera. Somebody is half smiling and then they realize they're on camera and there's this mm-hmm. change of expression to uh, uh, much more serious um, look. But James, what, what were your first impressions there? I would echo what Peter said about the clarity. I mean, the quality of the image is quite outstanding. And yeah, you saw right up close to people. You know, this was not, there were some panning shots, but equally throughout the Soviet Union, they would go, literally stick the camera up their nose, which I thought was wonderful media stage management. But then the kind of stage management falls to bits when you see them um, taking Stalin's coffin and kind of stumbling and grabbing it and, you know, dropping it uh, literally onto the onto the dais. And you consider that in you know, contrast to the well-ordered way that Prince Philip's funeral was carried out. It really was 
at the other end of the spectrum. Um, it must have been a very heavy coffin. I, I enjoyed watching it as I felt a bit like a voyeur because there is no plot going through it. It is just the reporting of Stalin's funeral. There's no narrative to it or very little narrative to it other than contemporary narrative. And so I felt like a voyeur watching it throughout the Soviet Union and that perspective on it, I really did enjoy. Yeah. And you, you get the, you know, cause you've got the announcements of his death and the praise of his work and how can we live now because Stalin's no longer with us. I mean, I found that bizarre how over completely over the top those death announcements and eulogies were that the presumably Soviet radio were putting out. It, it was very bizarre. And one of the things that, that really struck me about it was the fact that it was, it, it just seemed to be ongoing and constant, almost like to the point of brainwashing. And you really got a sense as, as they panned the crowds, as they were listening to these announcements that people were trying to take it in, but as they were taking it in and as they were moving forward, it was almost like the the announcements or the praise or the sorrow just got more and more and more intense. It was almost like it was snowballing. And you could hear it in the announcers' voices, too. And, and imagine that this went on for literally days over the course of after he passed away through to when he was entombed. There was almost... And I, I, it's funny because I know that the Soviet Union obviously was was not religious. It was completely against religion. We, we understand that. But there was almost like a deity of, about what they were trying to make Stalin based on what they were saying. How can we survive without him? Look at all he's done for us. The, the cult of personality was was quasi-disturbing. Yeah, and I guess what, what you got to remember there also is that, you know, le- that he was the second leader of the Soviet Union. And I think Lenin died 1920-something. So Stalin, Yeah. So, you know, Stalin had been there 30 years. Um, so they didn't really know, you know, an- anything else. That cult of personality. He put Molotov's wife in a prison camp, and she was known as object number 12. But when he died, uh, she spoke in praise of the dead Stalin and I just thought you know you put them in prison and then you praise them you know that really does speak to a massive cult of personality that is quite hard to um quite hard to replace and you're right I mean he did you know somebody something I read said you know he was a necessary evil he did industrialize the USSR and he did defeat Hitler and he was you know a very necessary force to do that um but it was quite quick, the unwinding of his cult of personality, you know, in the years that followed as, as Beria, Milenkov and uh, Khrushchev fought it out for the, for the leadership. And I think, I think that that's a good point you segued into there because you see as the film moves from the initial stages of the announcement to the official mourning and the, the um, people visiting the lying in state, it's really interesting looking at those figures standing there knowing what their future was going to be. So when you look at Beria, he's there. He obviously thinks he's in pole position to lead the USSR alongside Malenkov and Molotov. There was going to be this this trio there. But I think Beria thought that he was going to be top dog. And yet I think by October, he's dead. 
Malenkov is ousted, Molotov is is pushed to one side as well, and Khrushchev has managed to seize power. And Khrushchev seems quite in the background in, in a lot of these scenes. It's very much Malenkov and Beria. Um, and Beria, I mean, it always surprises me. It's sort of like the banality of evil argument. You look at them, and Beria looks like some, I don't know, bank manager type. Um, apologies to any bank managers out there. And Malenkov doesn't look anything exceptional either, but I guess, you know, they fight their way to the top and that that's it. It's quite interesting seeing the British Communist Party arriving on the aeroplane uh, to see, you know, one can't imagine today anything like that happening, that, you know, they're flown from the UK to, to Moscow to, to mourn the passing of the dear leader, you know, the, the little father. It, it's, it's quite incredible to watch them coming down the steps of these old aeroplanes. And that, that was a scene that I really enjoyed, uh, James. It was interesting when they had that, that maybe 10, 15 minutes where you saw all the foreign dignitaries coming in from Romania, from Poland, from the Czech Republic. I believe there was a representative from Finland that came down. Um, I, I, it was really quite something when you saw the Chinese delegation show up because that, that, that was I think a, a very, obviously a very, very big deal when you have the largest country in the world sending a delegation to mourn Stalin. And one of the things that, that really hit home for me was when, and Ian, you, you and I had been texting about this, when you actually saw young Ceausescu, and I actually rewound to, to try and see that young Ceausescu as the Romanian group was coming off the plane. You saw Walter Ulbricht from the GDR, who was uh, in, in one of the delegations. There were personalities that attended that funeral that were part of the broader Cold War discussion, really, up until you know the, the late 1980s in, the, in some cases. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I also agree with James about the the British delegation because it's Harry Pollitt who is the leader of the British Communist Party um, at that that time, and because uh, I, I was looking to see what plane they came on, it looked like a Aeroflot plane, so they'd obviously come via somewhere else or they'd been picked up or something. Um, but yeah, that that was a fascinating scene because there was one delegation where they're effusively shaking hands and they're almost looking around to make sure oh i better not miss anybody out here you know i've got got to make sure that i shake hands with it with everyone and then there's a scene where somebody's carrying the suitcases off the plane as well for one of the delegations i think i can't remember which one it it was where it appears as though one of the leaders is greeting his daughter who i presumed had been studying in moscow or something like that and it was little details like that that sort of I don't know. That, that, those are the things that I was quite fascinated about. It's, it's always in any interview that we do, any conversation we have, it's always the minutiae uh, that is the most interesting part. What was it like to actually be there? What did you see? What did you do? Rather than the, the grand arc of history, it's how ordinary people deal with it on a, on a daily basis. I find that's the, the voyeur aspect I was mentioning. I just find it fascinating to, to watch, to be a fly on the wall. And that's, I think, the key thing, you know, it's the human interactions. It's almost like when you've got this type of candid photography, you are really given a glimpse into people's personalities in terms of 
how they're going to react to seeing someone perhaps they haven't seen for a long time. You can see body language. Some people are, are very warm towards each other. In many cases, they're quite frankly not warm to each other, and you, you get a sense about how they, they stiffen up and so forth. And this is what I think the beauty of this movie is. When when you watch it, it's not even just the Khrushchevs and the barriers of the world, but it's also down to the average Soviet citizen working in, in the, the Kirov factory. It could be one of the scenes that really struck me was it gave you an, an idea of the extent of the, the 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 size of the country when I don't know if you both remember that one scene where they had people getting together in Siberia and they were being led in by reindeer by a, a sled that that was being pulled by reindeer in the middle of the snow and you you really it really gives you pause for thought that all the way from Moscow, literally 10, 11 time zones away, you've got people mourning Stalin in the middle of Siberia, uh, people from the Inuit community, yet they're all, they might be decked out in the Inuit um, Inuit winter clothing, but they all had their, their red pins on. I think it, I agree. I think the span of the USSR really comes out in the, in the, in the film. And you, you realize it really did go, across many, many time zones. In the more, I was going to say, in the more urban and metropolitan areas, I felt that when I watched people's faces, they didn't know always, or most often, how to react. You know, to Ian's point, that there was sort of the the quickly hidden smile because they were on camera. But people didn't know whether they should be crying, wiping their nose, or just looking solemn. And I think that that indecision in the population was was um was visible and, and quite tangible some of the scenes had obviously been posed but some of them did sort of come across as being pretty spontaneous when they were filming a big crowd then it seemed difficult to to pose that but one of the shots i found really almost cinematic was one where there's some guys uh marching down a pier and they're carrying a picture of Stalin, and the camera is panning back, and it looked like something out of some art house movie. You know, it, it really, you know, looked like it had been set up and lit really well. But even the, you know, the regular scenes seem to be lit incredibly well. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yeah, a lot of time and effort went into making sure that everything was going to be of a very high-quality nature in terms of how the filming was, was going to come out. And there were points where I, I absolutely was convinced that scenes had been set up and they, they were being done 
for the, the purposes of cinematography. And I think, Ian, you referenced one just then with the, the pier. You know, there was a scene that I recall, not it wasn't on the pier, but there was one that sort of reminded me of that, where there was a period for maybe 30 seconds where the camera was panning in on uh, a young man who was carrying a banner. And it was just done in such a way that you felt you could have been watching one of those epic movies from the 1950s that, that they'd used all the talent and, and all the styling that you could imagine to put something like that into the, the coverage of Stalin's death. So the, the scenes where people are entering the, um, I think it's the hall of pillars. I think the place was called where the, where the lying in state was they had the various quite long sequences of people coming up those stairs which were, again was was interesting because i think people were just unsure as to how to behave there but there was a real cross section and mixture of of people there which, which i found really interesting because you'd expect you know the party mem you know the high up party members there but almost the further it went on, you had people who genuinely looked like they were dressed in not quite rags, but certainly not, you know, as well off as some of the other people there. There was a bit in the the, the film when I was uncertain about how to, to react. And it was quite early on when they sort of dump his coffin um, uh, down and they open the, the, the top so you can see his face. And there's quite a close-up of his hands in his face. And you're thinking... I'm looking right up close to to Joseph Stalin in you know in good quality, not grainy film. He's not talking at the front of some you know central committee meeting, and you're just kind of waiting for his eyes to open or something to happen. And it's it it is chilling to 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 look at. It doesn't last for long the scene, but it is chilling for the period that it does last. Yeah, but they have made him up a bit because you his skin looks great on his face whereas he was known because i think he had smallpox or something early in life and he had quite a pockmarked face which he was a bit paranoid about so the the uh, undertakers have done a good job there well we we do know that they have good morticians and embalmers in uh, the soviet union based on on our, our friend mr lenin who is uh, still holding court but that raises an interesting one did, did you guys remember the scene where they showed there was like at least five or six different artists who were standing by the casket the entire time and there was a sculptor there was a painter there was a sketch artist and and it seemed like they were doing everything possible to save these moments for posterity and that was something that really jumped out at me, the fact that you've got the, the leader of one of the, the allied countries, uh, arguably one of the, the, the biggest personalities in the 20th century, and it was like they had thought of literally everything to, to, to save this moment, to make sure that this moment was going to be captured. And I think, James, you made a, a really good point that within a matter of months afterwards everything was falling apart in terms of his cult of personality it was it was just disintegrating and falling apart yet they at the time it just seemed that they wanted him to quote the queen song to live forever and it just it's it's just amazing how things you know they can, they can hit a hit an arc or they can peak and then they can just fall apart very quickly talking of capturing the moment the one thing that i really wanted to know and which i'd be very interested to watch is the making of the film where did the footage come from? Was it stuck in an archive for forever? How was it edited together? Apparently, they were going to make a film of 
the funeral. So they specifically recorded this stuff in order to make some sort of film in the Soviet Union. But obviously, once Khrushchev came to power, that was off the cards because they didn't want the you know the the culture of personality angle being done. So the director Nozitska, I think, went to the archive and said, "Can I have access to this?" And he and they said, "Yeah, go ahead." Uh, use what you want. So most of this stuff had been unseen until now. It was interesting that it was a, did I see there was a Lithuanian production company who pulled it together, which I thought was slightly ironic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Given all that's going well, on in the world. Yeah. You'd imagine it would have been a Georgian one, really. Exactly. You? <laughs> you would have imagined, yeah. It's true. It's but, true. but I wonder if it's linked also to the revival, to a certain extent, of the image of Stalin. Well, I think that there's potentially a danger there because if you showed that film to people who don't necessarily know the whole story of Stalin and cut out the last scene where they put up in words the the victims, the number of victims of Stalinism, then you know, you could interpret it another way. And I guess that you know, there's always a danger with any you know, film people are going to interpret it in certain ways, but this is probably perhaps more vulnerable because there's no commentary or comment apart from that final shot where they they've got the words up on the screen uh, showing the numbers. It's true, and you you think about somebody who wasn't aware of Stalin, or perhaps there's enough family members who who passed away that the, the generations have effectively shut off any any continuity between a young person today and a grandparent or great grandparent you watch that without that commentary at the end and you would be convinced or you could be convinced that this is somebody of, of tremendous stature who did so much good look at how upset people are that they're gone now yeah yeah i mean there is that element of hysteria amongst the well, both the mourners and people when they're they're hearing the the announcement, and I guess some of that is manufactured. But I think for some people, that that would have been genuine. I mean, you hear stories of like during the Stalin's terror of people saying, "Oh, well, Stalin can't know about this." You know that that we need to write to Stalin and let him know that this is going on because they just believed he was just a force for good. And wouldn't have been, you know, signing death warrants or having people haul people out of their beds in the middle of the night. I mentioned to my father that uh, I was watching this film, and it, it reminded me of something he said a long while back. That in 1953 he was 11. He was at a cathedral school down in Cornwall at Truro, so a little, you know, out on a limb, should we say, in, in terms of the UK. And uh, he remembers that. When Stalin died, everybody was called into the cathedral for prayers because they they were worried about the power vacuum. They were worried about the instability that would come. They were worried that what had been a good counterbalance to, to the West um, would disappear. And so they prayed for peace, thinking that you know, the end was nigh. And you know, then you read that, that Eisenhower, too, kind of rebutted the the overtures of Khrushchev as he wanted to have better East-West relations um, because it didn't suit the U.S. narrative at the time to to have a, a more benign Soviet Union. And so it, it, it's interesting that 
it had far-reaching implications. I mean, that's one small story, but it had far-reaching implications um, around the globe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, looking at the the mourners who who turn up, I thought one one of the really interesting ones for me was Vasily Stalin, Stalin's son. Um, at one point, he's sitting down with his wife, and he looks like he's about to keel over. Mm-hmm. He looks really no. He's almost shaking with. I'm presuming it's grief, but it almost looks like nervousness because daddy's gone now. Who's going to look after him? Is sort of like the you know the 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 scene there, and he almost kills over later on. They're almost holding him up at one point. Could be the alcohol. I don't know. It could be a mixture of all things. It could be a mixture of fear, relief, and everything. You know. But I, I but I think that's 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 a key point. What what we're saying here: alcohol, fear, relief. You know, you think about it. A, the, his father is gone, and that that had to be traumatic. B, I think Ian, what you said is, is very apt. Who's going to look after me, or who's going to protect me now? Because we do know that when there have been changes of regimes in the communist countries, uh, the children of of previous dictators have have sometimes been open season, and you know then. There, there comes into the fact about you know just nervous exhaustion, and that could have very easily contributed to sort of his comportment at the funeral, or even the the extent to which he felt that he was he was able to handle it. There, we don't know what was going on inside him, but I can't imagine he couldn't have been at least having some pretty severe internal panic attacks. Apparently, he did have a severe alcohol problem, and uh, he was arrested, sentenced to prison, and died in 1962. But his sister outlived him, Svetlana, I think her name was. Um, and she eventually emigrated to the US, I think, or in fact defected to the US. That has to be the definition of irony, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stalin's daughter <laughs> you know, defecting to the US. I, I seem to recall, didn't she spend some time in London as well? Uh yeah, I think she I think she did. I'm uh quickly looking down because there's that really spooky photo of her on Beria's lap as a child, which is quite often shown. And he's got his arm round her her waist, and it's just a really um creepy, creepy creepy photo. But the other the other mourners there are quite interesting. I don't know whether you noticed there was a scene with an older woman who turns up and she's quite emotional about the fact that Starlet and she seems to be quite important. And I think she is La Passionara, who was the Spanish Civil War veteran who when Franco came to power, ended up in the Soviet Union. She's quite famous. Uh, Dolores Ibaruru, I think. If you're familiar with your Spanish Civil War history, people people will will know her. But obviously there, there was a big chunk of the, certainly the Republican uh, Spanish community who ended up in the Soviet Union and were sort of given asylum there when Franco came to power. But any other notables you spotted in those delegations? Walter Albright was the one that I I saw that really stood out. And yeah. you know, I've seen a lot of Honecker. I haven't seen as much of Walter Albright. And he, he did look like a bit of a poisonous little man. 
he and he was front and center in the whole thing too. Whenever you saw one of the foreign delegations, I, I noticed he seemed to push himself out to the front. And uh, I think Ian, I think I texted you as I was watching it, saying I I'm pretty sure I saw Chu Enlai from China, who was uh, part of the delegation. The eyebrows are a dead giveaway, right? <laughs> right, and seriously, he was known and- for them. Any distinguishing features? Yeah. Yes, eyebrows. <laughs> well, I, I was astonished to see Ceausescu because I hadn't realised he was that high up at that point during the Cold War. And he looked positively cherubic in uh, his, you know, he looked so young. Um, but as you said, Peter, you know, that's a connection right through to the to the end of the Cold War there. That's true. Um, what what about the um, the the funeral I found that quite interesting, the whole jostling for position at the front to be able to hold the uh, the coffin. If they'd known that the regime was going to continue and they were jostling for positions and they knew the importance of the film and that they were being filmed, I think that that's how they would market, them throughout, market themselves throughout the whole USSR. It's the only way you could do it in the days before social media and, and other news outlets. But it looked like um, they were hardly holding the coffin. It looked like they were just holding this handle, and the, the soldiers, soldiers were carrying the carrying the weight there. It uh, it didn't it didn't look like a an an even load there. But I do, the other thing I found about interesting about the coffin is he seemed to be Stalin seemed to be sort of like enclosed with this glass window over the yeah. Yeah, it was like a bubble over top of him, like what you saw in the Batmobile, that, that shape of a, 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 like a glass dome over his face, I guess, because maybe they were concerned there was going to be snow or rain outside. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't waterproof makeup, I think, perhaps. Maybe that was the problem. Or maybe he was uh, going off at that point. <laughs> Slightly smelly. Oh, oh. <laughs> or smelling of uh, vodka. I have to say that, the, that if this, this is... I have to say that if this is the kind of film that we can see on the movie platform, it is a fantastic platform. Um, the chance to see the kind of films that we wouldn't ordinarily see that would be broadcast, that would be quite difficult to find. And so I think that there's a, much to, to give credit for, um, for putting this kind of film on, on, the, on the movie platform. Well, there's other films on there by the same director as well, which I'm going to have a look at too. You know, the films that I've I've looked at on there, I've just thought I didn't even know this existed, um, yeah. and there's some really interesting stuff on there. You know, not just purely of the era that we're interested in or the countries that we're interested in, but you know, other other movies on there um, which certainly aren't, you know, what what you might see on other streaming services. Uh, I think that what this movie and what the access to this movie does for people who might be studying the cold war in university or who have a particular interest in it as we do perhaps a little bit later on in our lives is it gives you a real snapshot into not just what say the leaders of the soviet union or the east bloc or the communist world would have been doing or how they would have been acting and something like this but it's probably i think the first time i have ever got a real snapshot of of what the average soviet 
citizen would have been like in the 1950s, whether it was somebody who was working on an oil rig or somebody in a factory or somebody who's in a fishing village or, or as we were talking about earlier, a member of the Inuit community in Siberia. This is a part of the Cold War that I don't feel has been given a huge amount of attention, but something like this really gives an illustration about what perhaps their lives would have been like, what they were wearing, what the styles were. And something that really struck me was for almost every one of the women that you saw who was in that procession filing past the the coffin from, you know, just an, an average background or even in some of the smaller villages or in Minsk or in, in some of the more remote locations. I don't know if you guys picked this up, but almost every one of them had a, had a handkerchief over her head. Mm. And that's a stereotype that we've always had about Russian women or how ladies in Russia would go out and about, but there we're seeing it live. And it's crazy because it's not something I expected was going to be as common as you would pick up in movies or television, but there it was right there. And then, yeah. But, but that is the great thing about this kind of film on the movie platform is that we see a country at a point in time when there were certainly no Western cameras there, you know, there was nothing, you know, very little was recorded and we now get a chance to have a look at it. And that is, that is you know, a privilege in a way, because you're quite right. Seeing how, the everyday people of the USSR looked, acted, is is something that's quite hard to come by. The street scenes were quite interesting because, as you were saying, James, about us loving the minutiae, I was almost looking beyond where the camera was focused on and seeing what else was happening in that in that street scene. Yeah. And I remember there was one scene, and it wasn't a street scene, but it was a whole bunch of mourners carrying these these wreaths and things in the funeral procession and there's a guy who looks like he's holding some big wooden thing with a picture of stalin in and you can see on his face thinking god i wish i brought something lighter this is so (laughs) heavy Um, and he's trying to lift it up with his leg at one point but it's little vignettes like that 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 made the you know made the film for me because it was it was just snapshots of of life that you wouldn't otherwise see because it was just shot in such a long form format. Even though it was brilliantly edited, you had some quite long scenes where you had the chance to sort of study people more than perhaps you would ordinarily. But you see, you've just raised something that that jogged a, a memory from watching the movie. And there was a scene maybe in the first 45 minutes where they panned or they they went to Tallinn in Estonia and you saw this huge lineup of people who were lined up to buy a newspaper to get the details of, of Stalin's death. But it wasn't so much the queue and, and the newspaper kiosk, it was everything around it. And I thought to myself, the, the compare and contrast of say a city like that, which you could have mistook for a city in in france or in the netherlands it it was it had a very distinct west european feel to it or or almost scanned obviously scandinavian but at the same time then they had some scenes from minsk which you could tell was still very much destroyed from the second world war Uh, and as you went further east you could see changes in the architecture i remember there was one uh, scene in 
in I believe uh, the the Tajikistan uh, part of the country, and you could tell you were absolutely in Central Europe based on the the buildings and their construction, the architecture, and again that give you that gave you a snapshot into not just the day to day lives that people would be having coming and going, but also the immenseness of the country and how that immenseness is reflected in terms of how the cities were built and laid out. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about Tallinn, because at that point, it had only been part of the Soviet Union for 13 years. So yeah, a really short it. period of time. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. That, that news kiosk s- scenes were really interesting because you had a real variety of people picking up the uh, the newspapers, and it was nice and static, so you could you know you could really you could really study it. Um, what what did you make of the the speeches from uh, Malenkov, Beria, and um, Khrushchev and Molotov? Not a lot, obviously. From <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the thing was, is I wasn't I wasn't necessarily listening to the words. I was looking more at the body language and and again, what was going on in the background because Khrushchev is there hovering behind. He's sort of like the MC, isn't he? He does the intro, and yeah. you know, he's almost the puppet master. I, I started by listening to the speeches with the subtitles on. Then I realised that that wasn't the point of the objects and that actually it was just the the soundscape that they gave and yes looking sort of past that into what was going around it i thought it was a fascinating window into people that so far i've only ever read about and never ever seen uh, on screen from from my perspective you know i the, the speeches I, I really didn't give a lot of a lot of credence to it. It was rhetoric. It was what you would expect for an event like that for somebody like Stalin and from the people who were giving the speeches. There was there was no big surprise. But again, I think what was what was fascinating was what you both had said was the, the body language, the, the jostling on stage, the, the the positioning, and almost the ability to self promote in in that type uh, of an atmosphere. That was much more fascinating, considering we know now what we know, and just imagining what was going through everybody's heads. Yeah, they were almost doing their sales pitches, weren't they? And then there's the then there's the carrying in of the uh, the coffin into the um the mausoleum and and stalin is preserved in there until 61 i think it is overall i mean it, it's it's over two hours long it, it didn't seem like two hours i think that you know it's like you almost need to immerse yourself in it and and just let it wash over you to some to some degree or watch it almost like james you said as a voyeur not necessarily you know, there's obviously not going to be any car chases or or anything like that in this. It's it's observing a moment in time in incredible detail and um, and color as well because it's not all black and white. So that, I I think the things that really stand out for is some of those color sequences were in, incredible. I mean, you mentioned Minsk earlier. Uh, Peter, and there's the scene where the people are walking up and down that central boulevard, carrying their pictures of of Stalin um, there. Which, I'd, again, I you know, it, it was just really interesting to view them and really see their 
their faces and almost see you know the the personality behind you know what they were doing yeah it, it's true and it, something that, that you know we've talked a little bit about is as we i think Ian, you referenced as you got to some of the main urban centers like in moscow the people would see a camera and there'd be a bit of discomfort as you mentioned they they snicker a little bit and so forth but i was thinking about some of the people who were shot out in the regions you know especially as you went further east or further south and you got a lot more I think of like a natural response to what people were actually thinking and feeling. Because let's be perfectly frank, this was 1953. Odds are many of these people in the outlying regions had never seen a television or a movie camera before. They had no idea what it was. And they wouldn't know how to react. They wouldn't know that uh, they were they were being recorded or that they could end up in a film or on a television program. And and there was that level, I think, when you got out to some of these more outlying spots, that level of of naturalness that, that really for me came through and 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 really gave it that much more level of, of humanness when we were getting down to the individual level of what individuals might be thinking. If any film that they did see would be a film that was distributed centrally, so there's no free media, free video. You know, to this film was being made perhaps for the greater purpose. You know, because that is what they would see uh, out of the back of the trucks uh, around the Soviet Union. I thought the film was beautiful, um, even though that the subject matter was not. I thought that the way that it was shot, the the mixture of the close-ups, the mixture of the panning shots, the ability to look in the foreground, and as we, you know, I know we all did look in the background to see what was really going on. Um, I thought made it something that was was exquisite. It's a bit like um, the the sort of slight trend towards slow radio. So there's Radio Lento, which is a podcast. There's um, you know slow radio on the BBC, which is something you listen to over several hours which kind of carries you off somewhere. And this carried you off somewhere. This carried you into the Soviet Union in 1953. Just as Cold War conversations transforms you into East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, you know, same thing, James, same thing, James, but through the ears (laughs) rather than through the eyes. (laughs) This is true. This is true. I don't, I, I must admit, I don't have many two hour slots to watch films these days. But, but you know, it's funny. It's funny. You mentioned, I think, what James, you said about being a voyeur, you've got to allow yourself, you've got to allow yourself to be immersed in this movie. You've just got to, got to sit back and put it on and, and just almost block everything else out. And I've done this with other videos that I found on YouTube about say the GDR or Czechoslovakia back in the 1970s and 80s. And you can find people who've taken extended extended cuts of footage and we're very fortunate that we're able to stream these nowadays but if you just allow yourself not to get distracted turn your telephone off turn the rest of the world off and just imagine what it was like as you watch these scenes as as you see people going by going about perhaps their day-to-day stuff or in this case mourning somebody who's passed away there's almost a sense of an appreciation that you, you can really get if, if you just permit yourself to do so. But I think nowadays in our era of distractions and smartphones and all sorts of devices and technology going off, it's tough to do. But but I would counsel anybody who wants to take advantage of 
watching this movie to just do that, just allow themselves the luxury of a couple of hours and just watch it uh, and, and just allow themselves to be lost in the moment. State Funeral is streaming exclusively on Mubi from May the 21st and the film is followed by an exclusive Q&A with director Sergei Loznitsa in conversation with Pietro Marcello, director of Martin Eden. Our listeners can watch this film and much more with 30 days free at mubi.com slash coldwar. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.